Who do you bring with you to work? Try as we might, we can't leave part of ourselves under the pillow with our pajamas when we go to work. We bring all that we are. Hey, it's Dustin Burleson, and you're listening to The Burleson Box. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Gabriella Brown and her latest book, All That We Are, Uncovering the Hidden Truths Behind Our Behavior at Work. In this collection of stories, Gabriella Brown shares insights from over 20 years of taking psychoanalysis out of the therapy room and into the staff room. At a time when we are rethinking the workplace, all that we are shows us that by taking human nature seriously, we can build more humane organizations where people and their work can thrive. I'm so very excited to introduce you to Gabriella in her latest book on today's episode of The Burleson Box. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. I'm so honored to have on the program today, Gabriella Braun. She's the author of All That We Are, Uncovering the Hidden Truths Behind Our Behavior at Work. Gabriella, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. I love your book, and I know our listeners love books that are more than just opinion and that are rooted in research and in the literature, and yours is well-referenced. Um, you cite in the book a problem, I think, in the workplace. We see this in the U.S. I suspect you see it in the U.K. in this kind of relentless push to increase productivity and profit. It really dehumanizes the workplace. Um, you say in the book, quote, we try to rationalize and control our ways of work as if we were robots, end quote. Can you talk to the listeners about what happens when we do that? Oh, it's a great introductory question. Um, I think what we do, and it, it's it's very understandable, but very, very sad. We've driven our workplaces to basically work against us as if we can be robots. And I think it's partly our anxiety that's driven that, that we're, we're caught with wanting ever-increasing productivity and we keep on and on and on driving that to exponential growth. That's what we think we need. And we ignore the fact somehow in all of this that we're human beings. So I think the thing about being robotic is that we're, we've forgotten that we're not just robots that, you know, if you press certain buttons, certain things will happen. We've got feelings, we've got emotions, we've got a life outside work that comes with us to work in our minds, whether we like it or not. 
Um, we get triggered by different dynamics at work. And all of this is going on as well while we're at work. And if we pretend it's not, which we so often are trying to do, it just tries to find another outlet. And I think it increases our stress and it increases mental ill health in the workplace because we're not treating ourselves as proper human beings. It's so powerful. And I, I think unique, particularly, I think, in the U.S. And correct me if I'm wrong, I see a lot of um, your approach taking psychoanalysis into the entire organization. I see that um, maybe just at the C-suite level or maybe with individual um, executives who engage with coaches. But I don't see it being done system-wide in, in the organization like like you have done. And I love that your book shares stories because it's such a great way to communicate new knowledge and I've and I remember it better. So thanks for doing it and sharing. Uh, <laughs> you're well. Yeah. It's so nice. Um, can you kind of unpack a little bit for the listeners your approach? Because I feel like it is different in the in the aspect that so often a mid-sized company, which most of the listeners to this program are, will hire a consultant to come in and fix structural things to maybe yeah fix things at the service level, but they never really get to who we truly are at work. And that's kind of the basis for your work, right? What's what's that been like helping organizations see that differently? That is exactly the basis of my work. You're absolutely right. It's been a, a slow drive to help organizations see it differently. Um, and I, I became increasingly preoccupied that people like me, consultants like me, that apply psychoanalytic thinking and systems thinking as well, uh, have been so poor at taking out into organisations generally. So we tend to maybe take it into the health sector, maybe the education sector, where they were more uh, open to this kind of thinking. But to the corporate world, which didn't know this kind of thinking, we, we never really, well, we got there in tiny driblets. We were very poor at connecting with that world. And so I tried to engage people by, because what I became convinced of is that we were talking the wrong language. We were kind of talking in our language and expecting organisations to adapt to us rather than us adapting to them. And so the book is exactly as you say in stories because I think that's a language that speaks to everybody. And what I try to do is really try and talk to people, not in any way that simplifies psychoanalytic thinking, but in a way that makes sense of it to regular people in regular workplaces. And my experience is that if you do that, people will often suddenly say, oh, oh God, yes, now I get it. Actually, there's a whole lot of stuff behind. We can do all we like with the structure. And of course, the structure is important. But there's all this other stuff about who we really are that we've been ignoring at our peril. And if you get them to think about that and see it in understandable terms that relates to them, um, my experience is people are they're a bit scared. And it is quite scary in a way to delve deep and to see what we're doing and that and not just look at other people around us but look at ourselves and our own motivations and our own behavior 
for good and for bad. It can be scary, but once people click to it, I've found that they're they can be really responsive and it can make a real difference. I had many of those moments reading the book. I said, ah, this is why that was happening in the business. <laughs> this is why I see this with members or clients. And um, I'm curious your thoughts, because I, I feel like in our, in our industry, there's a lot of elective healthcare providers. So mm. think dentists, orthodontists, oral surgeons, pediatricians, dermatologists. And we often will find someone who's really good at their job, uh, maybe who shows up early, stays late, volunteers to help with extra projects, and really has high work ethic, which we seem to really prize in the U.S., right? We just work, we're all about work, work, work. My European clients don't have that problem. They're, they're better at uh, turning off and taking vacation. But mm. I, I, I see, to the point, I see a lot of people promoted who are really good at their jobs, but whom do not understand human nature, do not have the capacity to lead and manage teams. And then we scratch our heads at, well, why, you know, Susan is so good at, you know, doing dental assisting work. Obviously, she'll be great at training and leading other dental assistants. Yeah. And we wonder why that doesn't work out. Can, yeah. you, can, you, can you speak to that? I mean, this is really about, and I think your book opened my eyes to really leaders need to be better at understanding human nature, don't we? I absolutely I couldn't agree more and it happens in the UK as well that we promote people because they're good at their job and we don't take the time to think about hang on a minute leadership requires something else um, and then we try and give them some training in you know psychometric testing or whatever and we or we put them we give them very simplistic ideas about human beings and we think that's enough and of course actually i think for an, a huge number of leaders the hardest part of leadership is people it it's it's not the stuff that we can control you know you can read a book you can learn to do some of the, those other things much more easily it's usually the things that people leaders wake up in the middle of the night about the leaders that the things that really stress them and get under their skin and can make life really worrying and sometimes incredibly stressful and miserable it's people so i think we've got to change our attitude and we've got to help support leaders in really understanding what makes people tick, including them, the leader, but also the people they're leading, and actually support them in seeing where it's working and where it isn't and why, and what they might be able to do differently and why. You beautifully highlight in the book that a lot of this goes on at the unconscious level, right? You say in the book, there's three different purposes that operate in organizations. There's the official purpose, you know, why we exist, the things we put on the wall and talk about in, in quarterly meetings. And then there's a purpose the staff believe they're carrying out. And then there's the unconscious purpose in the mind that yeah. staff are unaware of. Can you share more about that? I can. Um I, I illustrate that in chapter one, which is the choices we don't know we make, which is where I'm really trying to introduce the idea of the unconscious and how powerful it is. And that idea of the three purposes is actually from Gordon Lawrence. It's not my idea. Um, and I find it incredibly helpful in organisations. And when you say it to people, it generally really clicks with them as well. And you get them... 
everybody can tell you the things, as you say, that are on the wall. Oh, yes, our our official purpose is this. This, yeah. is, this is what we're all about. And in that chapter, I'm talking about an addiction centre um, because it was so powerful with them, but it happens not just with them. It happens in all sorts of probably every organisation to some extent. But in this addiction centre, I'll talk about that because I think it does really illustrate it. You know, their, their obvious official purpose was to treat their clients. Um, the purpose that we understood, it was quite easy to get to, was that the staff believed they were helping their clients to have a better life. So not just to um, treat the addiction, but through that, to really have much better lives. But it took me quite a long time, I have to say, to understand the unconscious purpose. They weren't aware of the unconscious purpose, obviously, by default, because it was unconscious. Um, but it became, eventually, I got it, the unconscious purpose was what they had done, many of the staff, not all of them, but very many of them, they were addicts themselves. And they had swapped their addiction to drugs or alcohol for an addiction to the organisation, which they weren't aware of. And that had been then that that was their purpose. So it governed how they behaved to each other and really worryingly how they behave with their clients. Um, it led to some very poor and very worrying practice. It led to people staying there when they desperately needed to leave. You know, there was one guy that I talk about in that chapter who hated the organisation, was contemptuous of management and couldn't leave. And it was through that that I finally twigged what was going on, um, or it led me to finally twig what was going on. And I, I would say to him, it must be so painful to think the organisation, the management's so bad, but not be able to leave. And eventually he left, and that felt like a good thing for him and for the organisation and the team. But it, it was a powerful demonstration of how our unconscious can be doing things that we're very unaware of, but it has a mammoth effect on us. And although that one is, as I say, quite dramatic, I think there are all sorts of ways that our unconscious can be, you know, we're, we're doing something in the workplace for a purpose that's nothing to do with the official purpose. Absolutely. I, there's another chapter on uh, surgeons, who uh, many of which are listening to, to this podcast, right. and our pursuit of perfectionism and yeah. the, the barriers we put up. And I just immediately rung out to me that uh, that creates a lot of anxiety in our team. So these, you know, there's many examples you cite in the book of these kind of unconscious influences. Yeah, um, I want to highlight one because you, you talk about it in your own papers and then John Bowlby's attachment theory um, in the safety and security in the workplace which is probably going on in that addiction center as well, but at a higher level. Do you think there's any link um, between that and maybe what's going on in this time of a pandemic while, the, while we're doing this recording with this what we're calling the great resignation and people maybe leaving jobs at a higher pace um, and their, how they relate to safety and security in the, wor in the workplace? Do you, do, you, do you think there's any link there? 
What a great question. You're the first person that's asked me that. I think there's a huge link because I think the pandemic, I think it threw us and and some of it was unconscious, some of it was conscious, but we've never experienced anything, most of us have never experienced anything like this before. It brought our mortality up in in really in our face at the beginning. I mean, it's different now, but at the beginning, we didn't know what we were dealing with. Huge numbers of people were dying. Um, we were confronted with something very, very, very frightening. And I think it made us very insecure. And that will have provoked many people's attachment pattern. So uh, what Bowlby says about attachment, in attachment theory, there are different, they come up with different ways of attaching. So some people have a secure attachment pattern and others have insecure patterns. And if we're insecurely attached, it gets provoked particularly at times of stress and illness. So the pandemic was mammoth stress on a global level and I think it will have provoked a lot of insecurity in an awful lot of people. And I'm sure you're right. That is part of the big resignation that people consciously and unconsciously want something different and they don't want to stay in the same situation they were in. I mean, it's, it's forced people consciously, I think, to reevaluate their lives and deliberately say, hang on, hang on, hang on, no, that's not for me. I don't want that anymore. But I think it's also unconsciously provoked behaviour that is about attachment. So we might, you know, just run a mile because that's about our insecure attachment pattern, if if that's the particular pattern we have. Yeah. Interesting question. It's it's one of the many reasons I love your book is it it just it forces you to ask some really tough questions about why yeah. you see what's happening in your workplace or what might be happening in your own career in your own life. And chapter yeah. three, you share a, a really powerful story about life and death, and you highlight these opposing drives between staying alive and living our lives. And quote the side of us pulling away from life towards death, you say we have, quote, an extraordinary capacity for love, compassion, and empathy for hope and kindness, an equally powerful capacity for hate and, and, and indifference and cynicism and cruelty. And again, we think we saw that during the pandemic with, uh, you know, the social justice riots and things that happened here in the U.S. and throughout the world. That struggle, you say, is hidden in our unconscious most of the time. So I'll never forget my training in, in oral surgery, you know, one of the, they just have such a unique personality and there's, I mean, it's just, you can sense it when you walk into their department and to their operating rooms. And he said to me, he said, you know, it takes a unique, cause I was kind of like, wow, it was really intense <laughs> here. You know, as an orthodontist, I get to work on healthy people and, and you know, mm -hmm. rarely do we have to pick up a scalpel, but in his world, he said, you know, it takes a unique person to think you can heal someone by cutting them. And I said, okay, I'm starting to understand the, the psyche of the surgeon, um, long rambling question, but what advice do you have in that, in that struggle? And, and particularly as it relates to chapter three, what advice do you have for healthcare providers who are listening to the podcast? Maybe those who work in hospice, we have some of those uh, mental health for sure, or other areas of medicine where they're routinely dealing with life and death and, and how can they be more open and honest 
and find compassion for one another. Cause it's been my experience that those clients, those members have the highest amount of stress and anxiety in, in their employees. I can imagine they do. Um, it's a really, it's a difficult question because I think what I learned, and I say that in the chapter about barriers and barricades, with which includes surgeons, I learned a huge amount from surgeons. And what I really learned was how much we need our defences in the workplace. And precisely what you just said, you were told that, you know, a surgeon has to, in order to help and heal, they have to hurt and harm. So you need to be very well defended to cut people open. You're doing it for the very best intention, but nonetheless, you're hurting people and you can't do it without good defences. And I learned really quickly with surgeons um, that I have to be respectful of those defences. So I think in any of those settings, hospice, surgery, healthcare generally, mental health generally, we we have to be respectful of our defences. They get us through the work. They enable us to do the work. But at the same time, I think as a practitioner, we have to stand back a bit and think, hang on a minute, where am I so defended in this that I'm I'm now unable to be compassionate to my colleagues or to my patients. I've lost some of my own humanity in this. I've gone slightly into the robot mode because my defences have become, instead of barriers that help me to operate, I don't mean literally operate, but it might <laughs> help me to function, we need some barriers but I'm now maybe I've got a barricade which stops anything getting to me and that is then very unhealthy. And and sometimes we can't do that for ourselves. We can't see the barricade ourselves. And sometimes that's where you need, it might be a coach, but it might be just a really healthy environment with colleagues that people can talk to each other and help each other. I think this is really, really important in these settings where there's a chance to talk about the struggles that we're experiencing and, you know, how awful it was just with this patient or how awful we feel about this failure because, of course, the work goes wrong sometimes. And and the being able to actually talk about some of our disappointment, our sense of failure, maybe most of all our vulnerability and not feel that we've got to hide that and be able to do that as a team. I think that's my advice really, that we create climates in which teams can support each other to be vulnerable. Vulnerable enough, not vulnerable that we're, you know, we're on the floor in a heap and we can't do anything. But vulnerable enough to say, God, actually, this is really affecting me. This is hard. And I, I need, I now need a gap. I need a, a moment um, to just process something and make sense of something. And I need some support before I go again. And it might be a five minute thing because sometimes the work is so pressured, or it might be the end of the day, or it might be the end of the week. But we need that chance to be vulnerable. Now? 
a quick word from our sponsor. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer, remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices with more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. And now, back to the program. I've discovered I don't think we provide enough of those opportunities in our, yeah. in our work with clients. It seems as though the majority, if not in some instances until we come in, all of the meetings are centered around hitting targets and status updates and quarterly initiatives. You know, I think over here in particular companies are just driven by performance. And those are the ones you talk about in the book and several stories where, you know, coworkers aren't aren't even saying hello to each other in the morning. They're just walking past and going to their jobs. And I think how how unfortunate. Um, but uh, I, I love that answer. And I think probably as I, I'm curious how often, but as often as necessary. You know, starting with at least every week a check in, maybe every day, um, first thing in the I, morning. Or, yeah. yeah, maybe a check in in the morning, or maybe a check in once a week, as you say, but a check-in that's real. There's, there's one chapter, it's Love Refound, I think, where I say to the uh, people I'm working with, the, the founders of the company, I ask them how they are, and they say, fine. And I say, do you ask each other this? And they say, what? I say, no, but really, do you really ask each other this, and do you mean it other than fine? And they say, no, that's intrusive. We don't intrude. And I'm like, no, that's not intrusive. You actually, your founders, you work together. You're the senior team. You've got to know enough about what's going on for each other so that you can step in where you need to to cover for each other so that you can be supportive to each other. And they started saying things that they didn't know at all that were really important. Like, you know, one of them, the, their father had died, another one, um, the mother had dementia i'm slightly forgetting details but really important issues that they were keeping back because they thought they didn't belong in the workplace and i think that is where we dehumanize ourselves we need the chance to really check in to say how we are and it might be you know i'm so excited because my child just won whatever or just did whatever or I just did something fantastic. That's a, that's important too. But also, actually, things are terrible. Or actually, I just I, I'm really upset about this that's going on with this patient or this colleague. 
you know, those things that are touching us as people that aren't about targets. And I think these the check-ins need to be separate from a target check-in or that kind of business meeting, because if they're part of that, they'll just get subsumed in in those performance-driven conversations. What a great point. Thank you for highlighting that. Yes, please, if you're listening, do not combine these meetings. <laughs> yeah, don't combine them. Not good. They'll just get lost. They'll yeah. get completely lost. And also, they, they involve very different frames of mind. Yes, yes. I want to highlight what you said, because it, it was a huge takeaway for me and your work and in the book, is that whether we acknowledge, for example, that you know, a, a parent has died or, or a loved one has dementia, whether we acknowledge that we're bringing that to work with us, we are uh, subconsciously yeah. or consciously. And that's what's so powerful about your work. So um, you, you give a great example. It just it's a perfect illustration. I can't remember which chapter, but you share the example of Alice through the looking glass, right? And that's yeah. what happens when we when we don't want to or refuse to kind of know a certain part of ourselves. And we're looking through ourselves, our colleagues through these different lenses. Um, you know, what is, what's been your experience in, in the organizations you've worked with where we kind of use this array of assumptions and misbeliefs? Um, you know, how can we kind of recognize that or see some of the pitfalls in it and kind of see through a more clear lens? Oh, another really good question. I, I think it happens all the time. Um, in psychoanalytic theory, it's called projection. So we project parts of ourselves or feelings that we can't bear. It's completely unconscious. We project them into other people. Um, and we find a hook in someone else and they take on that for us in some ways. But I think the thing about how we see things through different looking glasses, and I, I, I love the Alice story because it's so recognisable, isn't it? And she, yes. <laughs> she, she says something about, you know, I think I've, I can't remember what she says now. I quoted in the book and I've now forgotten it. I've been several different people since I got up this morning or something like that. Yes. And I say, or, or she's seen through several different looking glasses. And I think we all know, we talk about the rosy tint that we can wear. We know about that one. But we wear many different glasses, and I think there is something about just sometimes trying to ask ourselves, hang on a minute, am I seeing this? Is this a fact that I'm seeing this person or this team or this patient or this client or this stakeholder, I'm seeing them in a particular way, and I'm behaving as if that's a complete given, a complete fact but sometimes we need to just stop ourselves mid-track. It's hard. It's really hard. And just stop ourselves and think, hang on, is it, is it a fact? Is it a complete given? Have I put on a pair of particular glasses that colour the way I'm seeing them? If I took those glasses off, might something else be going on? Am I making some assumptions that might not be true? And then the minute we start allowing ourselves at least to question it, that already changes things. And we can, of course, then if we wonder whether we're, we're making some assumptions, we can check that out then. But if we never question it, we'll just carry on and on and on without even the thought that there are assumptions. 
it is in our minds just a fact. It's, it's, so I, I think at least questioning ourselves. Exactly. That's the that's the yeah. takeaway I had, and the, the, the I've got notes all through the margins. I hate to write in inside of of hardbound books, but I've got notes all over your books, so I apologize. <laughs> oh, no, I like yeah. that. I have a friend who says, don't do that to your paperbacks. Don't write inside of your uh, hardbound books. And I thought, well, I broke the rule. So, but in that chapter, I see this in a good portion of our members are orthodontists where everything has to be perfectly straight and, you know, quarter of a millimeter determines success or failure. Yeah. And so they're highly perfectionistic individuals, which is good in one aspect of their job, but I see it spill over into the support team that works in the clinic and it spills over into the patients. And one example, I think all the listeners who are in that field can agree are dental assistants who will um, start to give a patient a hard time or they're, they're looking through a certain lens. And when a patient breaks an appliance or has something going wrong with their care, they will blame the patient for, particularly a teenager, for eating something they shouldn't have been eating or for chewing on something they shouldn't have been chewing on. And it's just so interesting to say, now, wait a minute, you know, is that really what's going on? Or is this how we deal with our anxiety of working alongside perfectionists? Do we then embody that behavior? Do we then unleash our fear and frustration to the patient and think, well, this, this is something the patient did wrong? Instead of looking through a different lens and say, maybe it's our bonding protocol, maybe Maybe we need to be better motivators at, and, or educators at teaching kids how to how to take care of these braces. But it's it, it's just if you spent a day at the orthodontist, you would hear. I'm almost certain you would hear an assistant just badgering a young child about how they've taken poor care of their braces. And I just want to you know kind of like hang my head and go, no, it's probably not this kid's fault. <laughs> it's yeah. it's the environment we're in. <laughs> but you're so right because it's such hard work being a perfectionist, as you say, it can be helpful in, in having very high standards. But it's also, we kind of set ourselves up to fail because perfect doesn't exist. So, well, well, I may be wrong in terms of teeth, maybe perfect no, doesn't No, you're, you're still correct, even in teeth. Even in, <laughs> we'll okay. never, ever, get, we can always do it better in our minds. So you're absolutely okay. right. Okay. <laughs> so we're always then striving for something that we'll never achieve. And it's so, it's such a, um, a, a thing to beat ourselves up with that I think there's a massive tendency, if that's what we're doing, if we're seeking perfection and if it's really, if we're really hard on ourselves, we, there's a huge tendency to push it out. And this is the projection thing, to push some into other people, exactly as you say, it's, it's the patient's fault. We would be perfect if only they would do what they were meant to do. <laughs> if they would be a better patient or a better student or a better whatever it is, then we would be perfect. And and it's because we can't bear the the um, tyranny of our perfectionism. Yep, that's what needs to change a bit, rather than blaming the poor patient or the poor student exactly right we're going to bring all of our clients over to the uk and we're going to, we're going to put them in a room with you and have you start working <laughs> with them because <laughs> it's so true and you and powerfully i just was so thrilled to see you talk about nasa in chapter six and gary brewer's work at the time i believe he was at yale 
this can get really insidious. This can really, this, this trying to be the perfect place can really get dark and dangerous and two yeah. missions, people died. Um, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about, I mean, maybe on a little deeper level, this kind of illusion of perfection and all the obstacles that presents organization wide. It's one thing to be a, a, a small orthodontic practice where the orthodontist realizes they have this failed ideal of perfectionism but if we start to think and believe in the entire organization as a place that's immune from criticism immune from outside experts or new ways of doing things that's really really dangerous right it's really dangerous and i think brewer did he he came up with great thinking and analysis about this and how nasa did become and and encouraged by the outside world um, it became a very idealised place. And and uh, as we know, things went badly wrong on two missions. And the, the very dangerous thing was that they had been unable to learn. You know, they, they didn't, the second one, they could have learned from the first, but they didn't. They couldn't because they were self-idealising and from the outside they were very idealised. And not just in the States, I think all around the world, we looked at NASA in those days and thought, oh, wow, you know, they're like, they are the perfect place, but they thought of themselves. That's the really worrying thing about the perfect organisation, that there couldn't be any more ideal than NASA. So if you think that that's what you are, you can't take criticism. You're going to bat it away. You're not going to be able to learn. Because to learn, you have to think there's room for improvement. If you're perfect, there's no room for improvement. And exactly as we saw with NASA, and I used it because I thought it was such a uh, stark illustration, really, of how dangerous it can be. Um, but it happens, I think there are, I've worked with a few organisations that are self-idealising, not necessarily also set up by the world like you could say NASA was to some degree but they idealize themselves and they've also got into a lot of problems because they haven't been able to really look at themselves I mean there's an organization I can think of right now in the UK that's actually had terrible problems and one service has just been closed after a lot of a legal battle um, I think it threatens the whole organization's future. So, you know, things can go seriously wrong if if that perfectionism really takes too big a grip. It's a it's a wonderful um lesson in 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 what happened with NASA. And um yeah. if if the listeners aren't familiar with it, please dig into chapter six and and perhaps look at Gary Brewer's book as well, because it's such a wonderful um illustration of what happens when we're un, unwilling to learn. And as you said, and you're right, I think I didn't consider that aspect. The whole world was looking at NASA's and kind of reassuring this concept of like, wow, yeah, you guys, this is like the the pinnacle of organized human behavior and then then we just start to make poor decisions and don't even realize we're doing it yeah even though there were ample warnings um i studied briefly with the one of the engineers at university of purdue who was on that commission who looked at the failed (laughs) o-rings of the challenger mission and he said we we knew 
that we shouldn't have launched. We knew, and, and but no, but the the flight command didn't know. The astronauts didn't know. Um, it was all about um, getting that thing in the air. Uh, so the mission wasn't scrapped and, and pretending to be perfect once again and hoping things go okay. Um, I hope no one listening is is launching rockets and has you know life and death like that in their hands. But a lot of um, organizations um, can, I think, face the ultimate death of the organization the minute they stop learning and the minute they believe that they are um, are perfect which you said is it does not exist <laughs> exactly exactly your yeah. book has so many great examples where they oh okay that's it takes some common um assumptions and flips them on their head and i loved one and i can't remember from what chapter it is but i want to highlight this one to kind of inspire the the listeners to get through the book you share a really really neat story about a client who learned how to become less fearful. I think he was in human resources and um, to use um, his aggression in in a healthy way, which always sounds a little controversial. Uh, You said, quote, a leader who's scared of aggression, either their own or other people's is in trouble. Mm. End quote. Can you talk about the healthy side of aggression? Cause that was kind of new to me. It's not just new to you, Dustin. It's new. I think to very, very, very many people, we're taught to think aggression is bad, full stop. Apart from in sport, we do think, you know, we talk about aggression in sport being healthy, don't we? Yeah, yeah. That a footballer, and of course in the UK now where everybody's very excited because the women's team just won. I saw, yeah. yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> They're probably Huge still partying over there. About that. Huge. But, um, we we talk about aggression healthily in sport, but otherwise we think aggression equals bad and we have to stop it. And, of course, it can be terrible. It can be deadly. It can be wars and completely deadly. We know all of that. But also what we call assertiveness is the same thing. It's just, and I, I choose to still call it aggression. Because I think it's important to understand, for me it's important to understand that it's exactly the same part of us. It's about how we use it, not whether we have it. So human beings have to have aggression. We, you know, as a toddler, we need the aggression to actually muster our feet and legs and get off the ground and be curious enough to start toddling. As a teenager, we need a lot of aggression to, in effect, um, be slightly ruthless about our parents and think, no, they've had their moment. I'm I'm the next generation. I'm overtaking them now. We might not think quite like that, but it's, you know, not as consciously as that. But actually, the, the young generation has to have some aggression and ruthlessness towards the older generation because... They're the successors, and in order to succeed and to take the succession, they have to push out a bit. Um, it happens in organisations as well, of course. But if we can't, in this case, exactly as you say, this leader was very fearful about using aggression and came very unstuck with it because he couldn't take hold of his authority to say, no, you can't do that. No, that's not all right. No, that's unacceptable. I need you to do this and you will do that. 
Um, and I'm not talking about becoming an authoritarian, but you know, sometimes the leader has to say, that's unacceptable. Actually, do this. They have to do that sometimes. And he couldn't do it because it felt very aggressive. It is aggressive, but it's using aggression healthily. So if we're worried that we're going to be too aggressive, we will shield people so much from our own aggression that we won't be able to use anything and and we'll slightly whimper in the background, which is useless for a leader. And if we're also worried that we're going to get other people's aggression and they're going to attack us and be horrible to us, we're also in trouble because, of course, as a leader, we do get other people's aggression. Leaders provoke whether whatever they do, of course, we, we help or hinder people's reactions to us. But in some ways, we will always, leaders will always get some kickback because unconsciously they'll remind people of the authority figures that they had early in their lives, usually our parents, and they might be kicking back unconsciously against that or they're just envious that the leader gets so much more money than they do or that the leader has power over them. So a leader will always get some aggression coming their way and they've got to be able to deal with it. They'll, they will in some ways have some degree in which they're disliked or hated even. And if we're fearful of what comes our way from that, the aggression that leads to, we cower and we don't do things that we need to do. And this this particular client, he he was really anxious about using aggression. And when we got to it and when he started being able to use it, things really turned around for him. That's I wanted to highlight that because I love that story. And I think there's so many mid-level managers or what we call team leads over here in, in the healthcare profession who get assigned an initiative on the responsibility side, but then they have none of the actual you know, authority to go make decisions and get things done, which sets them up for failure. And um, I think it's a great chapter for them to read. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think one of the things that can be really problematic about authority is that people often think they get authority. Authority is given through their job title and their place in the hierarchy. And that's, of course, true to an extent. But if we can't find the authority from within ourselves, we've had it. Yep. That's so powerful. I love it. I I love the book. I love the importance you bring and the awareness you're bringing to uh, how we should under and how we need to understand human nature in the workplace. And we've only touched the surface. We can't go through the entire book. We would take far too long. And I know your time is very, very valuable. So I want to give you a chance to maybe let listeners know how they can learn more about you, um, uh, perhaps what you're doing through your consultancy firm working well and where they can follow you online any, any resources you'd like to share oh thank you um so online i'm on linkedin and i'm on twitter and it would be lovely to see you in either or both of those places um i can't remember my linkedin but you'll find me if you put gabriella brown b r a u n you'll find me and on twitter my twitter handle is I think it's Brown Gabriella. I think that's the Twitter handle. So you'll find me there. Um, you can find out more about my work through my website, workingwell.cc. And 
I think the other thing maybe that I'd like to say to people is I'm very happy to engage with people about their thinking, about their ideas. So don't feel that an author is somebody that you know, it is hugely precious. Feel free to get in touch and ask questions, and that's absolutely fine. That's very, very generous of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for writing the book. It's a contribution to society and, and to management and thinking. And uh, I love it and can't recommend it highly enough. So, Gabriella, thanks for being here. It's such an honor. Thank you so much. It was a delight. Lovely conversation. Great questions. And I, I hope people enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to share us with a friend or colleague. Visit theburlesonbox.com, where you can sign up to receive my monthly reading list, all the study guides for each of the books and authors we interview, or give us a call at 1-800-891-7520. We can talk about how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, or our annual leadership conference can work for you and your team leaders. Be sure to listen each month for new resources to help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence. And until next time, remember the words of Margaret Atwood who said, I read for pleasure, and that is the moment I learn the most. Go make it a great month. I'll see you right here next time on The Burleson Box. the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement. Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.